Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, uh, it's Adam Katz. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room's first, I think first, uh, roundtable where we discuss what it means for us to be writers. And we take in... Uh, basically letters and recordings from our fans and friends and so on. Um, we have one thing that we need to um, clear up before the podcast starts. It hasn't started yet, um, which is that we talk about, the conversation ends up centering on a story that I wrote that I, that I gave to all of these folks as beta readers. And so for that conversation to make any kind of sense to the listeners, we decided to make, I've decided to make the, a draft of the story available to you guys on our blog. There will be a link and you can read it at your leisure before the podcast, after the podcast, you don't have to read it. The podcast will still make a kind of sense and that's it. And now without further ado. Friday evening to all of you out there. This is our first ever record. Well, it's always recorded. It's our first ever release of an ivory tower special on YouTube. So hi all. And if you're not on YouTube right now, you're listening to us on the podcast. So yay, multiple modalities. Um, and I've now become the web therapist. You just say uh, yay multiple modalities. Yep, I did. Uh, so you can see um, if you're watching right now, we have a lot going on in our screens. Welcome to our boiler room Brady Bunch. Um, so I'm Andrew Rimby. Um, my fellow co-host, please introduce yourself. I'm Adam Katz. Okay. Yeah, you have to get the last name. Uh, we have our media director with us. Please introduce yourself. I am Erica Grimay. Okay, and our official contributor. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm married to Pippi. <laughs> okay, welcome all. Okay, so we are really excited. We have been broadcasting this event for the whole week. Um, so We've gotten a lot of responses from the community that we want to bring to your attention. Uh, that sounds official. This is very informal. Um, <laughs> so but you can talk about our website. That's official now. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yes, we have the um, Ivory Tower Boiler Room website that we are linking here in our episode, um, and the blog space is up. Uh, you'll see that all of us now have intro pieces about how we came to the ivory tower boiler room or how first adam responded to my facebook message and exciting news in august it'll be one year and we have some exciting plans for our anniversary um including 
a live show that will allow you to attend on Zoom, which I can't wait to see listeners. Um, so, writing um, is our theme tonight. And we're gonna do this writing round table a lot. So, right, this is yeah. only the beginning questions. So- And, and this one, and this one, um, this one ties in with this month's um, theme in the blog, right? Every, every month, we won't necessarily have a theme, but for the first month, we decided that everybody, um, once a week, one of us posts what we call a big think, which I find funny. Nobody else does. But that's fine. Um, and Adam was this week. So Adam, do you want to explain right. what the theme was of your So big the theme was to define yourself as a writer or to talk about your writing process or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was writing um, about your, ourselves as writers was what I exactly. said. Exactly. Writing started. about yourself as a writer. Thank you. No, 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 that's fine. So I wrote an essay about how much I don't like writing essays. Um, <laughs> it happens. Um, and, and you'll see what's in store uh, with Andrew and Mary and Erica throughout the rest of the month. Yeah. Uh, but, but for right now, we're, we, have a, we have a round table where we actually, as Andrew said, we solicited similar kinds of opinions from our from our fans, from our from the people who regularly attend uh, Andrew's uh, writing um, room. Yeah, those who have just responded to the call. Um, so we're gonna first try to put our quills together. And wow, that sounds really manically erotic. <laughs> Maybe I'll use that. Oh, I think I just broke my, broke my writer's block. You have to buy oh, me a cup of tea Yeah. Hasn't it? So please, someone uh, cite that. I um, we're what Andrew meant is we're going to bump heads. Yeah, we're gonna, that's so less we're gonna, that's less suggestive, okay, right? Okay. We have to be serious now. So <laughs> we're going to try to answer these these questions. So we don't have the answers for you. Um, so spoiler alert: uh, some of us might be um, having a problem trying to answer it, which I think is going to show how difficult writing questions are. So um, I'm gonna ask the first question. I'm not gonna answer right away because I've been talking a lot. Um, so our first question was to our listeners. Oh, and if you're listening or watching now on YouTube, you still can answer these questions. So comment on YouTube below, we'll monitor. Comment on our blog on Adam's Big Think. Also, you can email us your responses too. And follow us on Twitter with your responses and Facebook. Okay, there we go. So social engagement with media. How do you define yourself as a writer is our first question. Okay, wow, I think I need a break from that. So, well, let me ask Mary first. <laughs> Mary, say I was just in Starbucks in line with you and you said, oh, I'm working on an, my novel. And I said, well, how do you define yourself, Mary, as a writer? I mean, I feel like there's so many ways to define yourself as a writer. I think some writers define themselves by the genre that they write in. Um, mm. For me, what has always rang true as far as being a writer is concerned is that I have always defined my writing or myself as a writer as a storyteller, whether it's my own stories that I create in my head or if I'm telling someone else's story 
Um, I think that's a huge part of writing. And, you know, not that I think it gets lost necessarily, but I think when people hear writer, they either think books, magazines, newspaper articles. I don't think they necessarily look at the whole scope of what writing is, which again, in my opinion, is storytelling. So I like that. Storytelling. Okay, okay. That's a good jumping off point. Okay. So Mary's going through herself as a storyteller. Um, Erica. Okay, you're not in Starbucks now. Let's just say <laughs> I meet you. I meet you in the yarn store. Yeah. And store. somehow you tell me that you're writing a poem, and I say, "Okay, how do you define yourself as a poet?" I am not a poet. I do not define myself as a poet. You are just barely getting me to admit writer. Um, okay, follow follow the hypothetical though. This stranger no, no, really defines you. No, as a poet. I mean it, it's it's actually it's a good question because no, Erica would yell at a stranger. <laughs> This is this is this I'm is all hypothetical. Leave me alone. I want my yarn. Just as long as I don't take my yarn. No. Yes. I, I mean, the big thing is I, I have not defined myself as a writer um, all along. I mean, you know, since since I started writing with the rest of you as a group. I mean, since I started just writing even with just you, Adam. Mm. I I haven't define myself as a writer and I'm just now getting to a point where I'm becoming a little bit more comfortable with that um and it wasn't even like there was anything concrete that I could point to that would mean that I was really a writer it's not like I set out with the goal of being published or anything like that it was just it, it, it just, you know, it, it just wasn't, kind of wasn't there. But I think for me, it's, there are some things that have shifted and it's sort of um, an understanding and a knowledge of my own voice, which I'm still working on. It's things like looking at, at looking at my own work and as I'm writing, um, I had this experience recently where I was writing a poem and I wrote a line and I used a particular word in that line that I was not crazy about, but the word that I preferred changed the tone hmm. of the line entirely. I remember this. And what's that, Adam? I remember this. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I write in Google Docs, and so I put a comment in there that said, this is the word I like better, but it changes the direction. Um, hmm. And then when Adam and I were looking at it at another point, he agreed that I, you know, that I was right, that that, that really did change the tone of what I was saying. And so that, and like having that moment of recognition for myself that's that was a big deal to me like okay, so that was a big step in you defining yourself as oh a, absolutely so okay, I, I mean that's yeah I mean that you you all convinced me to do that Sam Sachs poetry workshop yeah um, we'll get into it we'll get into it I don't want to give everyone these are all the little things that are kind of yeah that's good steps yeah. so I say that I'm I, I mean this is my cocoon 
I'm in my cocoon right now and I'm transitioning I like to defining okay. myself as a writer. Nice metaphor. Okay, so I'm gonna, basically my job as the moderator here is to make sure the listeners understand how each person is framing the question. So Mary says storyteller, Erica says the weight of defining herself as a writer was very difficult, but now she is in a cocoon stage. Okay, Adam? By the way, Mary, Mary and Erica, if you have something sort of summarizing or totalizing to say, the position of moderator can be usurped, mm -hmm. uh, just Thank so you, you know. <laughs> um, I guess I'll go next. Um, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Sure, so, so I, I think I struggle with the label writer also, which, may make Erica chuckle because I've been giving her trash about, <laughs> about, about, about having the confidence to call yourself a writer and now. The dirty looks you give me when I say I'm not a writer. Yeah, okay, let's not, let's not yeah. air the dirty laundry. <laughs> I mean, we have a task, we have a task tonight. We're trying. It's another episode. We're just gonna face off and have a stare. Okay, Adam. That'll be on no. YouTube. Adam so, is avoiding the question. I am, oh. <laughs> Evasion. Don't say it, Adam. Evasion. Go on. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I see Adam. I don't know who he is, and I see him in the um. What's the library in Columbia? I can't remember the name right now. Butler. There you go. Sorry, it came to me. I see you in Butler in the stacks, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, are you a writer? How do you? Um. I think so. Um, all the all the evidence um, mm -hmm. I've collected says that I'm a writer. It feels weird to say it, mm. but I think so, like the the fu the funny thing is that I don't think I've changed from the person I was as an adolescent who just had lots of hobbies. Mm. In that way, I don't think I've changed. Um, I mean, back then I was I was playing piano, I was drawing and painting and playing chess and. Uh, and yes, writing um, and playing tuba. I've, do I've dropped the tuba, but the rest are still, uh, but I picked up knitting. Hmm. So, so I'm, I'm still someone who, who divides his attention in a bunch of different directions. I like to cook, but am I a cook? No, of course not. Um, I love to write. Um, I wouldn't, say that everything I do, I do as a writer. Uh, but I do think I do think I need to write. Hmm. Um, I mean, we've had that conversation a, uh, a, a bunch. And I want to I want to take your um, permission to read a few lines from um, Raina Maria Rilke's uh, Letters to a Young Poet, which I first encountered in college, and has really shaped the way I think. I'm not sure I like the passage, but I do know that I identify with it. I don't think that everybody has to, but I think I do. So, and it goes like this. Um, you, you ask whether your verses are good. You ask me. You've asked others before. You send them to magazines. You compare, the, compare them to other poems. You're disturbed when certain editors reject your efforts. Now, since you've allowed me to advise you, I beg you to give up all of that. Hmm. You're looking outward. And that, above all, you should not do now. Nobody can counsel and help you. Nobody. There's only one single way. Go into yourself. 
search for the reason that bids you to write. Find out whether it is spreading out its roots in the deepest places of your heart. Acknowledge to yourself whether you would have to die if it were denied you to write. This above all, ask yourself in the stillest hour of the night, must I write? Mm -hmm. Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if, the, if this should be affirmative, if you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple, I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Mm -hmm. Your life, even into its most indifferent and slightest hour, must be a sign of this urge and a testimony to it. That's beautiful wow. and powerful, I mean. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's hard for me to acknowledge that that's what I've been doing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I've been drawing myself near to other writers, forming a community with you all. I've been, um, I mean, I had this novel on standby while I finished my dissertation and then I took it out again because it just, I, I wanted to see where it goes. I don't, add to it every day at present, but I, I do feel driven to, to finish it. I, I do feel an absence when I don't contribute to it. Mm. So, so there is that. I mean, it's, it is part of who I am. It is a significant part of who I am. I think we also like overlook the fact that like, yes, even when you're, you're writing, like, yes, that counts for something, but I think there's something also to be said for having at least just your head in the headspace of your novel. Like, I find myself, I mean, I don't, like you, I don't work on my novel every day. Like, I feel like I should, but I'm always thinking about it every day. Mm -hmm. There's always something that happens, you know, or just, you know, how my own brain works. It just, eventually, it just trails into some sort of aspect of my novel that keeps me in it. And like you, you know, I'm well, like, well, I'm determined of, to finish part it. The, part of what happens, and you, you and I um, both experience this, and we're certainly not unique in this, is that we have day jobs, mm -hmm. right? I, I, um, I spend upward like 10 hours a day sometimes giving people bad news about the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Not a, it's not a great feeling to go from that to then writing a novel afterwards. Right. And I think there's also like an emotional, mental toll that those jobs yeah. take on your brain. Like I know when I get home from work, I don't, I don't want to focus on anything else other than decompressing. Right. Right. Just because it feels like there's too much, like, I guess stress, you know, the normal stress that comes with a job, but I think it's hard to be a creative and have to have a job. I know that sounds so cliche no, or like privileged hard. or whatever, but it is hard. You could say that it's hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, there's any uh, upwards of half a dozen hours a day when you're literally not working because you're doing something else, which is working of a different kind. And then there's, um, and then there's the time afterwards and before where, where your energy gets sucked up in preparing for work, decompressing from work, et cetera. And, and it, that's fine. I mean, there have been, there have been days when I was, I was on from 12 to 10. I woke up at like nine, wrote for two hours and then went to work. Mm -hmm. 
are those days frequent? I wish they were. Yeah. Anyway, Andrew, why don't we kick the football to you? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Sorry, I hijacked that. <laughs> no, 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 that was great. No, this is good. Um, yeah, I think if you asked me that, um, and I do get a lot of people asking me like what it means to write or, um, you know, I think now, and all of us, I think all of us should talk about what we're currently writing eventually. Maybe this will, that will be more in terms of the audience question. But um, I think I define myself not that I avoid calling myself a writer, but I like to see that I'm more of a literary scholar, or I see myself as a scholar who writes, or um, I was even just thinking of the term a scholar performer, because I really think that what I do is a type of performance of lecturing or yeah. talks, I'll say. For you in particular. You yeah, going on walking tours all of mm -hmm. these public yeah I mean now comments. that I have the article that's published I definitely I feel seen as a writer if that makes sense in terms of academia mm -hmm. and that can be really um the goalpost always continues to get farther from you right so I'm just I'm relishing right now like as we record this and just the excitement of having my ideas out there um, I think what I really love is seeing our blog evolving with seeing each of us in our writing process. Um, yeah, I see myself as a queer writer. If, it, if, it, if you really had to pin a certain definition, I would say I have a queer voice, um, right? A queer male voice, I'll preface it. Um, and yeah. I, I want to jump in though about the blog for a second is that's been, Dealing with the blog has actually been a big thing in framing me as a writer because what I one of the things I realized having spent most of the last two or three weeks focused on website stuff and prepping blog stuff and things like that is I'm not writing my stuff. I'm writing for a different audience in a different way and looking at the work differently mm -hmm. and I'm feeling differently about writing mm -hmm. in general because I've had to go through that um not that I don't like writing the blog because I do well, um yes. are you upset that you're not working no do you think like you know, you're letting do you feel that you are neglecting the other writing yes you said the other like writing what writing are you stuff? Just so everyone, I feel knows, like, what, well, I think everyone we, needs to know what writing you're talking about. What writing are you um, What writing am I doing? So, um, <laughs> for the, are you, uh, do you mean for the blog? I mean, I've, I've been dealing with. No, 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 your personal writing. Oh, my, so my personal stuff is, um, there's one short story and I'm not a story, I'm not a storyteller like that. Um, I'm trying to learn how to tell a short story um because it's it's a skill i mean it's a process and uh you know i um 
and I'm not very good at keeping track of the threads and tying things together and remembering that this has to, you know, has to move from point A to B to C and be wrapped up at the end. And there can't be, I mean, you can leave, you know, you can leave certain things open to the imagination, but you have to be restrained in the number of things you leave. Yeah. But just um, remember, every time you watch a movie or a show, there's always something they never tie up at the end. And they're right. making thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars yeah. to yeah, literally leave some of these, you know, you do have to be, open. I mean, me you do have to be restrained in how many things you leave. Mm -hmm. But um, mostly- I'm not so sure about that. I really no. I I mean I mean I take your point that it's hard to write a short story and that it's hard to say the Iliad does like ends before the war. It's <laughs> it ends with the funeral of Hector. Yeah. There's there's nothing after no loose ends after that. Ach Achilles is still alive. Troy is still standing. Well, Adams, okay, actually, this would be exciting because it really starts to pull back the onion layers of us as writers. But I'm sure I know a lot of you tune in because you want to hear what's actually going on. You know, parfaits also have layers. Well, I think we need, <laughs> I think we need to be honest because all of us have read a lot of each other's work, which isn't, True. which was what makes our community so special. And a type of roundtable, like literally a roundtable that we share each other's work that I've read Adam's short stories. I've read Erica's poetry. I've seen Mary's crime fiction. Um, that was the scariest thing though about getting involved. Yeah. Is, is... I think they've read my, I think they've read some of my work. I don't know. Yeah. Come on. Okay. But you've shared, yeah. We read your article before you sent it in. We did, we read and your article, we read your poem. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I forgot because the article went through. There was like anyone who's <laughs> we done read a version of your article. pages, like you kind of get swept up in this heady timeline of revisions that you start to forget what you've read and what you're, um, <laughs> you know, what you're working on every day and what kind of feedback you get. It's exciting. It was an exciting period. And oh, plugging. We have those, the editors of the journal that my article was published in coming on to talk about what it was like for them to edit in July. So look for that in July. It's really exciting. That's, They're giving their time to do that. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah, that was the very first thing I said to Adam though when he said, come, come to the writing group is I don't have anything to share. And he said, you don't have to. And of course here I am, you know, uh, six months six months later and you guys have read you know the three of you have read I don't even know how many pieces and yeah, he's well, convinced me that I should put a beta a beta reader file together well, like which, Erica, have I yet convinced you you, you did I told <laughs> okay, you okay. did but just because we've talked about each other's work I think it's important if someone wants to give examples like I mean I can start with Mary because I know about Mary's mobster novel yeah with the novel she's working on and um like you said I kind of can you return Mary maybe you don't if you want to speak to it you don't have to right of course the option but you kind of said that the character the it starts to seep into your psyche every day like it doesn't mean you actually mm -hmm. have to be typing the story but it sounds like you're doing certain character work every day always novel 
Always. I mean, I the character, at least in my specific novel, is based off of a very specific mobster, um, not a popular one. Um, or at least I, I don't think he's that popular to be honest. I mean, sort of, but that's wait, semantics. But, um, so for him, I had more of a set plan mm. of his backstory and how this journey was going to take him. But with a lot of other, with a lot of time that I've had to sit on certain characters, I've really had more time to form some of these other characters that I wasn't necessarily thinking too much about. I remember one of my notes from my teacher being that one specific character who was a detective um, seemed to be very cliche. Mm. And at the time, all I really had was those cliche cop shows where you know that was really the only example and then I kind of had some experiences not like any bad experiences but like people I know who were in law enforcement and or in law enforcement I should say and something clicked with me I actually got in an argument with someone um who is in law enforcement about the you know how police are in this country and I realized that's it Mm. that's who I want this character to be <laughs> uh, okay you know and there's always something you know oh my, no I relate I don't relate mm-hmm. in terms of the character study I can speak to this with my article I actually I said this on Twitter I answered the question on Twitter <laughs> um that because it helps right it helped me work through myself as a writer which is always evolving right <laughs> we're not stuck in this definition of ourselves um sure. Sure. that I was feeling a critical void that I'm seeing. I still am. Like, there's this tension I see in the field of literary studies with 19th century studies, which is, where are the queer voices? And I was getting frustrated. I was getting frustrated that um, queer of color critiques were not being brought together. Um, They were existing outside. And you know, realizing that I needed to center them in this this conversation and just say Whitman had these racist statements and they need to be written. Like mm-hmm. we need to we need to have a reckoning. Mm-hmm. And it's not a sensationalized cancel culture debate. It's a, mm-hmm. need a nuanced discussion that actually looks at the legacy of slavery and his family and Native American genocide. Um, right. And yeah, and it was tense. I mean, I'm still feeling the tension. It's not like one person is having a debate with me, but I realized I kind of like that tension in my head. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, a lot of the process feels like putting a huge puzzle together, mm-hmm. but a puzzle that I don't necessarily have all of the pieces to at any given time. Yeah. So it's kind of just like, okay, I'm putting this corner together and then you know maybe this corner this little section here you know it's like just like a whole almost like problem solving essentially but it's the problem solving that you know you want to do and not the problem solving that they give you to do math homework sorry to throw shade on math (laughs) i love math my mom is also um she was a math teacher so i do like i give I give um, people who do math so much credit because it oh. just doesn't compute up here. Okay, well, 
you know, don't worry, I'm not going to bring out the calculus problems right now. Um, so, but yeah, I, uh, this reminded me of the process you also said of carrying it in your head. I was also going to say the need that I'm now recognizing of why I really love walking and why I really took Stephen King's advice in his on writing book, which I always plug. So eventually maybe Stephen King will come on the podcast. I'm calling you Stephen King. Um, that would be amazing. That would um, be amazing. You never know, we've put it out there. So it could happen. Um, so that he says that that writing time is to work through the process. And I, I agree with him because I don't think my writing in my chapter right now, I wouldn't have gotten to these points of the critiquing of democracy or understanding how democracy that Whitman borrows is already this really problematic exploitative system from ancient Greece. Like it's connecting together. If I just sat there every day looking at that same word, the same words without taking a break, I wouldn't evolve. Like I realize my walks, it also allows me just the chance to people watch. Mm-hmm. I learn a lot through that observation, which I think comes from being like Mary, a performing artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you learn how to do character studies. Um, it's very Stanislavski method acting. But um, yeah, so, okay, that's where I'm at. That's where Mary's at. I just read Adam's short story. I don't think he's, when he wants to share, he wants to share. But, um, oh, go ahead. You know what? I think this is actually, this is a nice transition to the audience question. Cause our other question was, um, I'm trying to look. Wait, don't keep me in suspense. What did you want to say about my short story? No, no, I will, I will. Don't worry, it's going to come. How do you define your audience? And I just want to say as Adam's beta reader and part of his audience, I saw in his short story this really erotically charged bullying scene that he actually didn't analyze in it. And I thought that was a really interesting... um, not disagreement, but just some people, I know Margaret Atwood says this a lot. I'm not my own best critic. Like, don't look to me for literary criticism. Um, Especially when people try to define The Handmaid's Tale as feminist, which there's a lot of categorizing. And I can understand why she comes from that approach because yeah, it's also sometimes you're just so, right? We're so close to our text. People are even writing to me right now. I'm sure this has happened to all of us with our writing. People are writing to me about how the article impacted them. And I'm like, wait, did I, is that what I meant? (laughs) You know, like, but it's, I agree with them. It's just not exactly what was going on with my intention. And I find that really interesting. It is really interesting. I I think that's how it always is though. I saw that in Adam's writing. There is. the, The bullying scene was meant to be erotically charged. I will say that. Okay. I have to get to that part. I read a, the first couple paragraphs and let me just say, it is amazing. Yeah, and let's um, just say it was, I was reading I it. as I was taking a bubble bath. Which I think maybe- Just it, adding to the eroticism You're here. welcome, I guess. Yeah, adding, adding like my own erotic layer to that's, that. That's, that's good to know. I, wanna- I read it and Adam was watching. So you get the whole voyeurism angle too. Right? He was watching, what? <laughs> I we were on Zoom. I don't know what was. I That's right. Well, I, I gave I gave Erica the story to read, and we were we were workshopping it together. There, so I got the. It's not. It's not fifty. <laughs> my, yeah, it's not Fifty Shades. Are, of Grey. All right. All right. 
now I'm going to talk to our mutual audience and yeah. say what's actually happening. I Not wrote like bubble bath, erotica. <laughs> what is Adam's doing? I wrote a, a, a story called At the Sign of the Red Lion that takes place in approximately 1570 and 1575, maybe, and concerns a young Shakespeare um, going to the theater for the first time. But the catch is that this is England, right? And in England, you were much more likely when you went to the theater to see a bunch of dogs murdering a bull. And so that's what he saw and it made an impression on him. And the whole, the story is about how his whole life is violence, right? He gets beaten by the school teacher, he gets beaten by his father, he gets beaten by the, um, the other kids. Um, and somehow he takes all of this and makes it something bigger and better than what he was given. And, and where that comes from, of course, is I've read Shakespeare at like some really pivotal moments in my life. Um, I keep coming back to King Lear, which is the most, it, it's, it's not the most violent Shakespeare play, but it's, it's up there. And it's still my favorite because precisely because it, takes that violence and, and, and elevates it and turns it into something else and says, you can do better. Um, so as, I mean, part, but, but part, I, I, don't, I don't mean to like, um, Andrew, I want you to finish what you were gonna say about your audience, that you, you said two things about your audience and I, I want you to finish that. Finish that. Um, because I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder, but but I, I think I have a similar answer. Yeah. Um. Well, I was just gonna say, Adam, just him explaining that right now added a new layer to my analysis of his story, which is, of course, <laughs> the violence is eroticized in his story because right. he's borrowing Shakespeare's poetics, itself is eroticized violence. Exactly. Book Lady Macbeth. Um. Are, the 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 the. Black ram is tuffing the white you. Did I ever tell you you are the like my favorite person ever to listen to talk about Shakespeare? You're not, but thank you. You you really are. I mean, Adam's giving Adam's giving us a free lecture. I'm blushing under my beard. <laughs> Actually, but for all this happens every time we all meet mm -hmm. together, which is why I think we just work well. Like we're all we all are. I was gonna say putting ourselves into pieces like a puzzle, but. Please don't. It's like, please I'm don't. trying to borrow a very, please, very metaphor, but it's too cliche now. Okay. Um, I will not survive you saying that. I know. <laughs> yeah, but I knew what what I was going to hate that. be an ivory tower episode without Andrew's metaphors that just uh, sometimes work and sometimes like this uh, didn't land. Like that, I didn't find my audience. Um, so, okay, audience. I would say what Adam just did as an example helped me understand that his audience does not have to know Shakespeare's work. And I say that because you don't know that the boy's name is Shakespeare. He's, he's never called Shakespeare. No, he's called Will. Yeah. And Which I, I don't think you need to know it's Shakespeare. And the reason I say that is because I didn't know it was Shakespeare because Adam never told me his intention behind the story. Right. I, so I, this, so this, this, this was this. I loved this moment because Erica knew right away, and Andrew didn't. 
Yeah. And it's really, it's really just like you, you can't predict what your readers will know. Andrew has, Andrew is, a, is a scholar with standing. And oh. yet, thank you. Oh, that's sweet. And, and, and yet, and yet, and yet missed it, which, which, which was information for me as a writer to say, do I want everybody to know it's Shakespeare? Do yeah, I want yeah. to beat people over the head with it? And mm. I decided I kind of do. So, so, so as I, as I revise the story, I'm going to, I'm, there's going to be more head beating. And see, I'm going to be beating my audience over the head. And I'm with Mary. I disagreed with Adam and I keep disagreeing with him because I'm not going to let go because (laughs) I, I told Adam when it comes to historical fiction, I actually like ambiguity. And one example I'll give is, um, Gregory Maguire's Mirror Mirror, where he takes the Snow White metaphor, this metaphor, my gosh, the snow, I'm just saying metaphor too much. The Snow White story turns it on its head by having the evil queen be um, one of the Borgias, uh, Lucretia Borgia, Mm. actually. Really interesting conceit. Mm. You don't, her name isn't Snow White, um, not Lucretia, but whoever the daughter happens to be in this scenario, I forget. Um, And I think it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't have to be Snow White because it's a subversive tale. It's a, okay, so when I say subversive, just to explain my lingo, um, taking something that's usually traditional and turning it on its head, going against the grain, seeing it from a different angle. And that's how I saw Adam's story, but that, I also realized that's who I am as a reader. I gravitate towards stories with ambiguity. Like there's a reason why I love Virginia Woolf because it is ambiguous. There is, it's not all tied together. So that's why, right? It's Adam's story. So as writers, we do get to, we get to decide how we're gonna revise, but I like the ambiguity because I thought it was really powerful. I just think it makes it more accessible because I feel like maybe some people who would read this who maybe aren't fans of Shakespeare or a good point aren't really you know fluent in Shakespeare can look at that and go wow this is an entertaining story mm-hmm. without but then how also like I feel like just the fact that it's Shakespeare like that it's almost like a shock factor I mean, it's mm-hmm. not going to be a shock factor now because we're talking about it on the podcast and people are going to find out. <laughs> Crap. Well, we'll get to learn who our listeners are really quick. Yeah. It's like but, opening um, the belly of the Trojan horse outside the walls. We're just oh, or should there be a it all on moment, kind of like the Scarlet Letter when you find out that it's um, right um, in the sable field. I don't know if anyone remembers the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, on, man, on, a field, on a field yeah. of sable, the letter A ghouls. Exactly. Um, which isn't as suspenseful as like, it's Shakespeare. But um, um, it's it's suspenseful, suspenseful for Hawthorne. Um, I mean, I got the Shakespeare thing because I performed Shakespeare, I think mm-hmm. was really what, what did it for me. Not, that, I might not have, if I had only read it, yeah. um, but you know, that, it may have been that immersive experience. I don't know. But does it matter? My question is, right? This is about audience. Right. All of this is audience actually. We're we're using we're using Adam's story as a case study. That's what we're doing. Fantastic. Um, is as a reader, if you didn't, if you're a reader, Adam, right? This is about readers right. now. 
if they don't define the character, the protagonist as Shakespeare, are they wrong readers? No, of course they... not. Of course not. Okay. But that's, that's for the current draft. If I change it around and make it more explicit, then that has to be part of the reading experience. Mm -hmm. I would, what do I would also, I would also say that there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the story that echoes Shakespearean language, right? Because, because we we all ask this question: How did some, how did the son of a of of a mayor, like a small town mayor, mm -hmm. with a with a with a business that went belly up? Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1570s, how did it, how did he become such a good writer? Mm -hmm. And the answer to, to any such question has to be, what opportunities did he have and what advantage did he take of it? And so and so the the way the way that you you end up so so, I don't know. There's, there's just. Um, I mean, there's first so of all, first of all, our readers. Because huh? no, there's so many questions because. Right. This actually, I think, is important though. Like, all of us have seen Hocus Pocus, right? Mm -hmm. I have not. Okay, Adam hasn't. But. That's oh, okay. with the shocked look on your face. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> okay, but it's a very, very famous Halloween movie. Um, sure. So the witches, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy and Jamie, Bette Midler all use Puritan language. It's kind of like what Adam does with Shakespearean language and verse. Mm -hmm. However, the witches are not historically real women from the Salem witch trials. That's how I read Adam's protagonist, that okay. it was the language of the Renaissance, but there's enough ambiguity that it could be any of these sure. characters who fit different niche, niche, sure. uh, niches in the sure. period. Um, um, and I think, right, you're gonna lose some things if you start to make it more explicitly Shakespeare. You, ab you absolutely are. But um, I, that, I mean, that's why, that's why it goes through multiple drafts and multiple, uh, I don't know, beta readings, I guess. And an maybe agent. Maybe there'll be a gamma reading. Right, and I'm sure Mary, you could explain the whole question about marketability. Right. Like, yeah, what I would mean, a literary agent say to Adam? I mean, I'm sure I, they would say make it explicit. I mean, I don't know though, because know. the idea of marketability is to be able to reach as many people as possible. So if you leave it ambiguous and don't let the reader know that it's William Shakespeare. However, I'm not saying that you shouldn't come out like on social media or other outlets to be like, hey, this is who it's about. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you can grip a reader just solely, which it sounds so simple, solely on the fact of just your story, mm -hmm. that could make someone who hated reading Shakespeare in high school want to learn more about mm -hmm. Shakespeare and want to yeah, read his sure. works. I mean, this or that is it could one be of someone, you know, that's Someone who hates agent. Shakespeare is still going to hate Shakespeare, but they may really like your story. That's a branding question. That's a brand. You know? well, well, so so I actually, the more I write about the, the more I write in the story, the more I see it as like 
possible, like some, something that you could package as a sort of educational pamphlet, because I read a lot of things when I was, let's say, sixth grade to eighth grade that were like Shakespeare adjacent, mm -hmm. right? Like a prose rendering of Romeo and Juliet or mm -hmm. a, uh, a shortened uh, version of, what was it? Uh, Twelfth Night and Taming of the Shrew. You really shouldn't give Taming of the Shrew to eighth graders or sixth grade or, or whatever, like however old I was. Like that, like save, save the, <laughs> save, yeah, save, save treat, treating your wife as a falcon you're trying to tame through starvation until, you know, age, age 16, maybe. I don't even yeah, say college. I, mean, I, I, I think I told you though that, that one of my kiddos had a, a big, like, adapted for young readers yeah. Shakespeare and yeah. was reading it probably in third or fourth grade because I, I asked um well what's Romeo and Juliet about and was told well there's this guy Romeo and he loves this girl Juliet and his heart pumps for her and um, then they end up dead yeah well <laughs> Oh my not, God! Not a lie! Not a lie! I mean, uh, you know, that is probably the most basic part of the story. I don't want us to lose. This show. I don't want us to lose the focus. Well, okay, so wait, sorry, one second. So on. Mary had said about she gave a very literary agent response, and it reminds me of yeah. like, why does Gone Girl do so well? Why do these formulaic mystery th thrillers, Girl on the Train, Gone Girl, In a Dark Dark Wood? Um, the woman in the window. They do dark, dark. Well. Oh my gosh! Why? Because they could be any of any woman who's mm -hmm. in that situation. It isn't, you know, resurrecting. It's relatable. Emily. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. not like Emily Dickinson's on the train. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think, and again, it's not that I'm saying Adam should change. I'm just saying, who do you want your audience to be? And this yeah, is exactly where it. the scholarly, and, the creative mm -hmm. writer communities differ a little because. Yeah. Scholars are writing usually for very niche audiences. They start to use jargon that makes other readers tune out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it becomes a very elitist activity. It really does. And mm -hmm. well, do well, you want to continue that type of tradition? Well, the, but so, so you, you said something in your response to these questions that, that, really, that really touched me, which was um, that you write for your younger self. Well, Adam, that's a really great question about writing for my younger self. And listeners, I will answer it next week when you hear part two. We really love to hold you in suspense here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room at right the exact climactic moment. So you can now all process what, in fact, it would mean if Emily Dickinson was, uh, was on a train in a mystery thriller. So on to uh, Adam's going to explain the release of his short story. And we will also introduce our bookend music that we now have after every episode, uh, Blackberry Blossom. Thank you all for listening to part one. We hope you enjoyed it. We really want to hear your feedback and tune into part two next week. Put a bookmark in this. Um... <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Make sure to visit us at our new website at ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find blog, 
links to our Facebook and Twitter. Um, and you will find, as we uh, mentioned, a draft of the short story I wrote that got vivisected in this very podcast. Um, now, here is Blackberry Blossoms, arranged by Michael O'Brien and recorded by Michael O'Brien on the guitar and Emily O'Brien on the recorder. <laughs> Thank you. 